Hello, welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan here in Victoria, BC. In this program, we all discover jazz old and new together. We'll listen to a wide variety of jazz styles and I'll present different topics, giving ideas as to what we can listen for to enhance our experience. Thanks to Peterborough Independent Podcasters for hosting this podcast. For the next 60 minutes, discovering jazz. Today I'm talking with an amazing drummer, composer, and band leader, Victoria's Kelby McNair. Kelby has has evolved into one of the most important leaders in jazz in Victoria, and one can't really avoid seeing or hearing him anytime you go to a top-quality jazz concert on Vancouver Island. Kelby is also an educator, and his mission in life is very much to inspire people, both from his words and his music. I was lucky to be able to spend an hour with him talking about jazz drumming and asking for some recommendations of records to listen to in order to help me understand more about the role of the drummer. Before we hear from him, I want to play a recording by a drummer from earlier in the jazz tradition who Kelby frequently mentioned. Baby Dodds. His career spanned from 1918 to 1959. One of Baby Dodds' unique characteristics was ensuring that he played something different in each chorus of the tune. You can hear it here, his Andrio's version of Jelly Roll Morton's Wolverine Blues.
Dodds Trio with Albert Nicholas on clarinet and Don Newell piano from 1946. I asked Kelby McNair about jazz drumming today and jazz drumming in the early days, expecting to hear about the amazing developments that have taken place over the years. But instead, I got this rather refreshing response, one that shows Kelby's respect and love for so many of the older jazz masters. Often people refer to the evolution of jazz drumming, and that idea that evolution is in a, a forward direction, I think, is a little bit of a, of a misconception. Every time we sit down at the drums, every time we play, we're playing in a context. Drumming hasn't necessarily become more complex, but the context and what we're inspired or asked to do has changed drastically over the years. And that could be a stylistic consideration more than a time consideration. Um, if you think about the early drummers like uh, Chick Webb or Baby Dodds or Zuddy Singleton, um, drummers coming out of the New Orleans tradition of traditional jazz, we still play that. I'll play a concert in a couple of weeks where I'll draw very heavily on those musicians and I'll play in a musical setting that, that what inspires my ear and is the right thing to do feels as if it comes from the year 1917 or 1930. And it doesn't feel any less fresh or innovative than the brand new music that I played with my band last night. Um, we maybe play rhythms that are less familiar, or we play combinations of sounds or textures or ideas, harmonies or rhythms that are less familiar and so they sound newer, but the, uh, the sense of discovery and uh, the in-the-moment creativity doesn't really change whether you're playing music from the 30s or music that you just wrote today or music from Cuba or music in odd meters, music of Dave Holland or Kenny Wheeler. Um, it's not so much that that the music is evolving is that it's changing and it changes in relationship to our lives. It changes in relationship to what's going on in the world around us. It changes in relationship to the different musical influences that are present. But hasn't jazz drumming increased in complexity over the years? I asked Kelby. So did drumming get more complex? Yes and no. Yes, there's a ton more notes happening. Yes, there's a, a bunch of cross rhythms happening and a bunch of different timbres and kind of amped up intensified relationships and the drummers are doing more but they're busier but is it more sophisticated i don't think so the sophistication to play quarter notes or to play a time feel that feels great is infinitely more complicated than playing a ton of fancy fast rhythms so you have a drummer like baby dodds or zaddy singleton who might not well, would be maybe very surprised if they time-traveled forward and heard a, a contemporary fusion band. But uh, the ability to express and to communicate feeling through an instrument is, I think, the essence. And those guys were masters of that. Let's hear some of that more contemporary-sounding so-called complicated with lots of notes yet still amazing drumming. 
a drummer who had a huge influence on Kelby McNair, as well as many modern drummers, Art Blakey, with his Jazz Messengers from 1956. This is Hank's Symphony.
Mark Blakey and his jazz messengers today, talking about jazz drumming. Kelby McNair referred to Zatty Singleton, another pre-swing era drummer who played on some of the landmark Louis Armstrong recordings of the late 1920s. Here he is with his own orchestra from 1940. Another Jelly Roll Morton composition, King Porter Stomp. notes isn't more complicated than playing a beautiful quarter note. Um, it's a really interesting idea that the drummers kept time. It sounds a little bit like you're relegated to the role of a metronome or like a, uh, a lunch monitor or something, you know, like saying, okay, this is what you got to do. But it's not really that. It's that drummers were almost like the, the keepers of the fire. They, they were the ones who you could think of that help to create the heartbeat or the sound of the pulse. But that also, I think, is a little bit of a, a misconception. If you listen to the early bands of Duke Ellington, um, you know, where f uh, you'll have a guitar player or a banjo player who's keeping time in a way even stronger and more consistently than the drummer. The drummers, for me, have the ability to dance on top of that quarter note. If I, if I put together a swing group where you might think my job is to keep time. Um, I'll conceive of my, my job a little bit differently. 
I might think of the rhythm guitar player as their job is to kind of put the time, not to keep it, not to keep it steady metronomically, but to keep it in a spot where it feels great all the time. Can you think of any particular track? It might be really interesting. Where I might be able to hear the drummer dancing on top of the quarter note. Yeah. Well, to me, to me, anytime Philly Joe Jones plays, he's dancing on top of the quarter note. Now, Philly is a fantastic I- example. They, they, I don't know of, of a recording of Philly playing with a rhythm guitar player. But when Philly and Paul Chambers play together, they have a really beautiful relationship where to me, Paul Chambers is doing that. Paul, the bass player, is really kind of keeping things going and Philly can kind of dance over top of that. His ride cymbal is, is consistent, but his ride cymbal is consistently finding the perfect spot to sit. And then his left hand, his snare, his toms, his accents are able to, to dance and play over top of that groove. They're able to spread it out, pull it in, tighten it up, make it sassy. It's all those kind of things that we're able to do once that quarter note, once that, and it's funny to call it a quarter note, that's what we call it technically, but it's once that core, once that pulse, once that spirit, once that flavor is established. Here's a splendid example of what Kelby's talking about. It's Philly Joe Jones playing on a Miles Davis album, the Milestone album of 1958, with uh, Paul Chambers on bass and Red Garland piano, and without Miles, Ahmad Jamal's arrangement of the traditional tune, Billy Boy. Thank you. 
also really interesting to note that on that recording, Philly doesn't have a high tom. So he only has a snare drum, a floor tom, a bass drum, two ride cymbals, and a hi-hat. What I also found intriguing was the very lengthy trading of fours between Philly Joe Jones and pianist Red Garland near the end of that piece. And I asked Kelby what made it so exciting. Oh, it's amazing. I think that makes it so incredible is the electricity between those two musicians. They're trading fours, which means they're trading four-bar sections. The piano starts it off, and then the drummer takes it back and forth. And it's a conversation. Um... Each of them has a moment to say what they're inspired to say at, the, at that point, and then they pass it back and forth. And so you just have this electrifying discussion, this uh, ability to improvise these call and response, this discussion that reaches kind of legendary heights on that recording. What I find interesting is that when, when they do the trading and Red Garland is doing the solo, um, Philly Jones doesn't lay back. Philly Joe Jones much. Yeah, he's you know, totally he's right in he there. He seems to be in there just as much as with his solo, and yet it's still very clear as to when his solo is. Yeah, his part. absolutely. He's he's behind Red Garland. He's meeting the intensity. He's just the same as if you and I were having a conversation. Our intensity matches one another. We're, we're excited about the same thing. So maybe we become more animated as we speak, or maybe we're talking about something somber and our tones get quieter and our pace gets slower. Same thing is happening there. So Philly is meeting Red's energy with this, you know, full-bodied sound, this sassy, involved, relatively busy snare drum comping. So comping being accompanying or, um, in this dialogue underneath Red's solo. And then also when he solos, he takes over the melodic driver's seat, if you will. And then they just trade back and forth. Next, moving on to another drummer, the great Vernel Fournier, who played as part of Ahmad Jamal's trio, the inspiration for the last track we heard, Billy Boy. The trio consists of Ahmad Jamal on piano, Israel Crosby bass, and Vernel Fournier drums. If Miles' band with Philly and those guys is a is like a, a bunch of grapes. Vernell is the wine. Vernell is the distillation of, of all that energy, playing only what's needed to tell a story to the audience. Well, I think one thing that makes that trio so special is they, they arranged as a trio. A trio is not a piano player with a bass player and drummer. It's three musicians playing together. Um, if you listen to the way Vernell plays brushes. Vernell's coming from a New Orleans tradition. He's playing calfskin heads. He's playing a larger bass drum. Um, he's got a very particular sound concept that he's doing. So Ahmad's trio kind of says, okay, we're going to paint a picture using this canvas, this size canvas, and we're only going to use five colors. Now, if you've ever tried to paint a painting and use only five colors, you'll notice that it's totally different than using ten colors, totally different than using two colors. So what Vernell plays primarily on those records is you'll hear, like on Surrey with the Fringe on top, you'll hear snare drum and you'll hear bass drum. You'll hear the time being primarily played with the hi-hat and the snare drum. All those what we call hits or shots are being played in rhythmic unison with the bass and the bass drum. Uh, and it just creates 
this incredible clarity because it's only used in key moments when it's really necessary. And what it does is it shapes the composition. And you'll notice that there's times when they'll play a figure on the head in, and they'll play that figure on the head out. It'll be exactly the same place, exactly the same spot, same dynamic, same figure, same articulation, same clarity of expression. And what that does for us as a listener is that helps to bookend our experience. And then what they often do is they'll also refer to it throughout the solo choruses, which is something that's somewhat unique to a Muzz Trio. They'll play sometimes those comping figures underneath the piano. Maybe it's a rhythmic figure that comes in the last four bars of the whole melodic cycle of the head. And maybe they'll bring that in in the soloing as well. And it becomes almost like a big band figure or a, uh, a theme. It's its own identity that comes up in the playing. Here is that version of Surrey with the fringe on top. The Ahmad Jamal Trio from 1958 with Ahmad Jamal on piano, Israel Crosby bass, and drummer Vernel Fournier. leads us nicely into another trio. Yes, one of the great trios of all time, uh, Oscar Peterson's trio. Now, Oscar had a number of great trios. Oscar originally, I think, maybe modeled himself on one of his major influences, the great Nat King Cole. He had a trio with uh, piano, bass, and guitar, with uh, Oscar playing piano, 
great Ray Brown on bass and Herb Ellis on guitar. That was an, an incredible trio. And then at some point, he switched and brought Ed Thigpen to play drums. Ed Thigpen, playing with these two uh, virtuoso, strong giants, was able to, for me, bring that energy. It's, it's almost like he's like the lid on the saucepan. When they're boiling over, he kind of keeps it at a simmer. He keeps everything together, but still on fire. He keeps everything moving forward, but not getting out of control. Other great drummers, some of the greatest in the world, have played with Oscar Peterson or Ray Brown. And yet, the particular feel, the particular flavor, the particular momentum that Ed Thigpen achieved with that group is unlike anything before or after. I listened to their version of Con Alma, yes. and the question I had is, what's he playing there? I'd have to know exactly which version you were speaking of. There's, there's a couple versions where Ed plays a cowbell, and he plays a fairly low floor tom as well. He, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pattern that, he's, that he has that, um, that he's worked out. It's kind of like a, an Afro-Cuban sort of pattern. And so he's created uh, a version of that pattern to work with the arrangement of the song. And it, and it just, it's kind of like they're, they're three chefs making, each of them are making a course. Uh, and so they each season and balance the flavors perfectly to complement what each other are doing. Each, each part of that arrangement, each, each um, composition that each of those players creates has a wonderful logic and intensity and clarity to it. And then when they all, when they all come together, it's just a beautiful thing to be. Here's what I suspect is one of the recordings that Kelby McNair and I are referring to. Dizzy Gillespie's Con Alma, recorded by the Oscar Peterson Trio on the jazz soul of Oscar Peterson from 
the Oscar Peterson Trio with Ed Thigpen, Ray Brown, and the Canadian-born Oscar Peterson and his amazing piano. We're listening to Victoria composer and drummer Kelby McNair talking about drummers on Discovering Jazz. Next, we're going to talk about drum innovators. I think what, what really happens is that drummers bring themselves to the instrument. They, they are themselves, and that's what creates their sound. Um, yes, they've all come from somewhere they've all studied for lack of a better word they've all uh, fallen in love with what's happened before they've all mastered that but then it's their own unique selves that come into the fore that create the innovation I don't think any drummer sits down and says I'm going to innovate I'm going to do something that no one's ever heard before they just happen to be playing in a context that the coincidence the stars aligning creates a context where they have something very special to offer and it comes to the fore. So two great examples of that, I think, are Elvin Jones and Jack DeJohnette. Definitely would be considered in, in history books as uh, innovators of the drum set. What nobody did before Elvin was the way he spread the triplet out over the other drums, the way he created... Uh, phrases where he brought different parts of the triplet than it had been played before and he moved them around drum sets in different melodic ways and he brought uh, a kind of he occupied a niche that no one had ever noticed was a niche before rhythmically in terms of spreading out the triplet mm. what would be an example of that where we could hear that maybe can I understand what you're referring to yeah so Elvin had a really round triplet feel that he liked to play with which means that as opposed to like check 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 he's playing so the triplet is this underlying rhythm of one triplet two triplet three triplet four triplet one triplet so that's like the inner structure so it's kind of like the triplet is the skeleton and on top you see just the skin which is you know what you hear but on the inside there's this subdivision happening this thing bubbling but what Elvin did is he played a lot of those but he played them in different ways so isn't you know, is, is a way of playing those triplets more so than they would have been played before. So Elvin used those triplets. He spread them out across the bar line. He also spread them out in the time. He made them fatter. He also spread them out around the drum set physically. So he played... Where he would move that triplet around the drum set through different toms melodically. But... I'm not sure if Elvin would have done that or to the extent that he did without playing in such a strong context where the context was open to him doing that. And that context I'm speaking of is the John Coltrane Quartet, the one that featured uh, the great McCoy Tyner who just passed away. And speaking of McCoy Tyner, next week this podcast will be a tribute to that powerful pianist. And I'll play him here as part of that great John Coltrane Quartet that Kelby is referring to. A fairly short track from the 1964 Crescent album, but one that I think illustrates those fat or extended triplets that Kelby was talking about. Here is Bessie's Blues. (laughs) ¶¶ 
John Coltrane with Jimmy Garrison on bass, McCoy Tyner piano, Coltrane on tenor sax, and the innovative drummer to which Kelby is referring, Elvin Jones. Did you hear how what Kelby so vividly described him as doing was actually what he was doing? Well, we've almost run out of time. And we haven't talked about fusion drummers, some of the great Canadian drummers, and other innovators such as Jack DeJeanette. And I also want to talk to Kelby about jazz drummers who are also composers and how they develop that sense of harmony and melody. And maybe even go more elementary and talk about uh, just what does a drum kit consist of. So that means... There's going to have to be another program with Kelby McNair in a few weeks' time. Not next week, though, because I want to do a tribute to the late McCoy Tyner. Ending today's Discovering Jazz podcast with a chance to hear the very talented Kelby McNair and one of his compositions. Kelby gave me a CD that he recorded in 2012, live from Herman's Jazz Club here in Victoria. One of my favorite tracks is one called Park Time, where Kelby does a very different drum solo uh, near the end of the track that starts off more quietly than any drum solo I've heard. For me, when I do a drum solo, it's a matter of, I like to tell stories. And sometimes if you come out of a drum solo in a certain energy, like out of a burn and tenor saxophone solo, or a quiet piano solo. Your solo is going to be totally different based on what came before you. And so f- for park time, I wanted to be able to take the, the audience on a journey. So much the same way that if you listen to Art Blakey, uh, maybe not on Hank's Symphony, but if you listen to It's Only a Paper Moon from the studio album, uh, you'll hear art start with almost nothing because it creates space. It makes the listener say, what's going to happen next? Mm -hmm. Same, all these drummers do that for me. That's what I love. So you say, what's going to happen next? And then they say, oh, this is going to happen next. And they take you on this magical journey, hopefully, that takes the listener on an experience and then hopefully lands them safely back to where they were headed before. Here is Park Time. Kelby McNair with Phil Dwyer on sax, Daniel Lapp trumpet, Miles Black on piano, and Tom Wakeling on bass. This is Larry Sademan saying bye for now.
Thank <laughs> you.